0: Welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing presented by our colleagues around the country in association with the George Consortium, Public Health Law Watch at the Northeastern University, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, Wayne State School of Law, the Hall Center for Law and Health at McKinney School of Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the National Network for Public Health Law. We are here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic with a special emphasis on the post-election world. I'm Sarah Deguia, CEO of Change Lab Solutions, a national organization working to achieve healthier communities through equitable laws and policies. And joining me here today are Professor Patricia Zettler at the Ohio State University Moritz School of Law and Dr. Jewel Mullen, Associate Dean of Health Equity at the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School. We're here to discuss vaccines, equity, and ethics. Thank you, Patty and Jewel, for joining me. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, Patty, I'd like to start off with you. You and your colleagues authored a chapter on vaccines in our COVID legal assessment. And in your chapter, you discuss the emergency use authorization pathway for drugs, including antibodies and vaccines. What have you learned since the publication of that report? And in particular, given the recent announcements about viable antibody and vaccine candidates, what can we expect?
1: Yeah, so the report came out in August. So, you know, a little over three months ago, but that seems like three years or three decades ago in COVID-19 time. So a lot has happened since we wrote that initial draft. We've seen FDA issue emergency use authorizations or EUAs for convalescent plasma and a monoclonal antibody for COVID-19. We've seen FDA issue a second guidance on COVID-19 vaccine development, um, including after reports that the White House was not going to let through that second guidance. FDA held an advisory committee meeting on October 22nd uh, to obtain advice about COVID-19 vaccine candidates in general. Um, And, uh, you know, Sarah, I think as your your question alluded to, just in the last week or two, we've heard from Pfizer and Moderna um, about promising early results on the effectiveness of their vaccine candidates and um, also have heard news that Pfizer is likely to submit a request for an EUA for a COVID-19 vaccine candidate, for its COVID-19 vaccine candidate um, very soon. Um, also just in the last couple of days, we've seen FDA commit to, um, posting scientific reviews of potential COVID-19 countermeasures online and commit to taking specific COVID-19 vaccine candidates to advisory committee meetings, and is reportedly holding some dates in December for those meetings. So, so much has happened since August. So I feel like our chapters, uh, you know, we'll have a lot of updates for the next round. Um, but in terms of what we can expect, um, you know, in the chapter, my co-authors, uh, professors Effimi Parasitas and Micah Berman, who are um, colleagues here at Ohio State. Uh, you know, we raise some concerns about the emergency use authorization pathway for a COVID-19 vaccine candidate because the statutory standard for issuing an emergency use authorization is quite low. It's much lower than a standard FDA approval. Among other things, it's uh, that it may it's reasonable to believe the product may be effective. Um, but, you know, I think the reality of where we are now is that given uh, assuming the data that companies are reporting in their press releases. Um, holds, I think we'll, we should expect to see FDA faced with a request for one or more emergency use authorizations for COVID-19 vaccine candidates very soon. So I think the critical questions now at this point are uh, assuming FDA issues an emergency use authorization, how should that emergency use authori- authorization be shaped? And um, as I'm sure Dr. Mullen can talk quite a bit about, um, you know, how should any COVID-19 vaccine that's issued in EUA be distributed and ethically allocated.
0: And could you just say um, a couple, a little bit about kind of the difference between the EUA process versus sort of the traditional process, just so folks understand like the difference in terms of the kind of level of evidence or or, um, process that it would go through. Sure. So for um,
1: sort of a regular FDA approval for a new drug or a vaccine, the standard in the statute is that the product is safe and effective, that its benefits outweigh Risks and effectiveness is demonstrated by substantial evidence generally, and usually that means you know three phases of clinical trials, including large randomized controlled clinical trials. Uh, The standard for FDA to issue an emergency use authorization is that, as I said, among other things, it's reasonable to believe the product may be effective. That you know, based on current evidence, the sort of benefits may outweigh the risks or seem to outweigh the risks. Um, So it's a much lower standard in the statute, and FDA. Is, is clear on that. Um, but EUAs are only available in times of public health emergency. There are some protections built into the statute. One is that temporariness of an EUA. Uh, so the um, uh, once the public health emergency is over, the EUA is no longer good. Uh, so the EUA only lasts as long as the public health emergency. Um, FDA can impose conditions on products distributed under an EUA, including um, limiting the patient's to whom the product can be administered, um, putting in place requirements to collect certain kinds of evidence about safety and effectiveness of the product and so on. Um, FDA can also revoke or revise an EUA much more easily than a standard approval. And we've already seen FDA revoke um, the EUAs for the anti-malaria drugs um, uh, that that were issued EUAs initially in March of this year.
0: Thank you. That's really helpful, Jewel. Let's let's shift and talk a little bit about distribution. And I know issues of equity have come up. Um, we're also seeing the, the talk about whether or not healthcare providers, essential workers, there's certain populations should be sort of identified or given the vaccine first. So, as a member of the committee on equitable allocation of the vaccine that was convened by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, what are some of the issues that came up in your committee or that you're seeing um, in your role?
2: Thanks for the question. Sarah, and I am moved to say before I answer it, I'm so glad you asked Patty that question first. And I want to stop there because I don't think we talk enough about the regulatory process And actually what I say about it influences what I'll then say about the uh, deliberations from the National Academies Committee. And the reason I wanted to highlight that is we're going to talk about things like trust and distribution and this notion that there will be a vaccine, it will be safe or safe enough and good enough for now in, in an emergency, and the public should have faith in all of us. And we, we have spent so much time in this country hearing people talk about trust in government and science. So this regulatory process gets us to consider how much people actually trust law because trust in law and regulation also underlies um, how we feel about what government and industry are trying to do for us. And we skirt over that. I think we skirt over that more than we ought to. And it's just worth mentioning right now because you know, as somebody who's worked in state and federal government, I know how much people might see me coming and think here's the person who gets in the way or here's the person that's going to make sure I am safe and protected uh, against the interests of somebody like industry or bad science. So I just, I just needed to say that first because perhaps through this process, we'll um, get some reassurance that a regulatory framework works for us and perhaps we'll also get some reassurance about how regulatory, regulatory frameworks might work better in the future or not. So then, because the National Academies needed to um, really think through what equitable allocation would look like, we also had to address trust in a number of ways beyond just who's willing to take the vaccine. And that gets to trust that the people who create policy at the local, state, or federal level actually have fairness and justice in mind when they think about everybody, no, no matter who they are, and factor that into deliberations around who gets a scarce resource sooner rather than later, knowing that for all that we've talked about, uh, the vaccines being a part of mitigating COVID, while people continue to use masks and wash their hands and keep safe, distance. We have too many examples over time of how fairness and equal regard for everyone are elusive. So we wanted to present, to come forward with a science or evidence-based approach that led with equity and ethics, words that I think some people glaze over when they hear and think are over overrated, but that are, are so elusive in conversations. And to help people understand that a notion of fairness is one that can apply to an individual or equal regard to an individual but also applies to big communities or to the public as a whole so that we could understand that part of taking care of everyone was going to be assuring that those who are out there still going to work every day as healthcare workers and first responders and those who can't control settings where they live, like nursing homes, are going to be seen as needing to be uh, recipients of vaccines earlier on. Uh, the, other, the other thing that I would want to underscore um, with, with regard to equity, especially this year, as we have, whether or not we wanted to, really needed to think about health equity and racial equity uniquely and together, simultaneously, is that equity is a broader concept than just racial equity, and that in the spirit of presenting in this country as part of a global community, the notion that some people are more vulnerable than others, we were going to account for risks that, in ways that acknowledge that social conditions that impact people often impact people who also are members of racial and ethnic groups. So we very carefully articulated how within any phase um, through which people would get vaccinated, people with the most social vulnerabilities might rise to uh, attention for vaccination sooner rather than later.
0: And Jewel, is that a, a new, is that like a framework that has been considered before when we thought about vaccine distribution, or is that relatively new? And is it also in the context that COVID-19 really did lay bare many of the health inequities that were already existing?
2: Let's say this was new. And the National Academies um, committee was convened by CDC and the NIH to undertake the issue of equity first and foremost, knowing that the ACIP, the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, is a standing body that regularly advises CDC on vaccines and which populations um, should receive them. And they do that in a way that can take risk and vulnerability in mind, but not necess- not leading with equity and ethics as their first considerations. So even with H1N1, uh, recommendations for who should get vaccinated first uh, were, were guided by understanding that children and pregnant women were among those who were most at risk for, for disease and death from H1N1. But that was still more based on just the epidemiology and not so much the, the social factors.
0: So I want to come back to the issue of trust in a minute because one of the things I want to talk about first is when we think about where the states need to in Patty, for example, in the article, you and your colleagues talk about the need for intergovernmental and cross-sector collaboration. And I know Julie, you're talking about the trust and the frameworks and the and the processes that are there. Can you both speak a little bit to what is what is that gonna take? What are the challenges, what are the opportunities around collaboration that are gonna be needed? To to make sure that we're getting the vaccines out, again, in that way that is both fair and equitable?
1: You know, I think in some ways, the sort of cooperative federalism or the intergovernmental collaboration that's needed is is really quite related to the trust issue. So, you know, we've seen throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of really troubling signs of inappropriate political interference with FDA decision making. And a lot of concerns have been raised about whether FDA, uh, you know, the career scientists at FDA uh, are going to be able to make decisions based on their scientific and public health expertise. And against that background of concern about that kind of inappropriate political interference, um, you know, we've seen states become interested in potentially assessing for themselves any COVID-19 vaccine candidate that might, that FDA might issue an EUA for. Um, I guess to be clear, I think FDA has taken some promising steps more recently with respect that hopefully will help some of those trust issues and help uh, assure all of us about what kinds of decision-making is happening. Um, And those include um, taking, seeking advice from FDA's advisory committee on vaccines. Advisory committees are required by law to be public and that the documents that advisory committees get are um, publicly available. So that's both an opportunity for the agency to get advice from outside experts, but also this really important point of transparency. In terms of understanding what data the agency is considering, Um, as I mentioned just yesterday, the commissioner committed to at least making scientific reviews of products that receive EUAs publicly available after the EUAs are issued. Um, You know, I think more could be done, but there certainly are the agency is taking these steps towards transparency that I think hopefully will help with public trust. But. I guess the point is that states also have ability to um, regulate the way products like vaccines are used, and uh, there, to the extent that we see state interest in kind of double assessing a COVID nineteen vaccine candidate that FDA might issue an EUA for, um, I think that is a signal about how much trust really has been lost in the agency. Um, I hope what we see is more from FDA that enables other government bodies, state and local. Government bodies to have more trust in the decision making that FDA is making. And that will enable sort of uh, supplemental collaboration rather than uh, kind of duplicative uh, work. Um, so I think I'll, I'll stop there. And try, I hope that's sort of responsive to the question. But um, uh, yeah, so I'll stop there.
2: So I have taken to call myself a cynical optimist. And some might think I'm an optimistic cynic. I'm not quite sure which it is. But I, um, I, um very clear about a few things. Uh, one of which is that for all the time that we're still going to say we want a coordinated federal response, you know, Patty already said the word federalist, every state, every governor can do whatever they decide to do anyway. Um, I'm concerned that the, the, the I'll say it's a handful right now of states that have decided that they're going to do their own review, maybe sending a message that the elected official has decided they're going to demonstrate for their, their constituents that they are really going to make sure the vaccine is safe. Um, And then I want to see how many of those governors convene a committee that doesn't have somebody on it that doesn't already come from pharma. And that's not to say that pharma is a bad guy, but all of these systems are so interwoven. I'm not quite sure where the the totally independent review expertise for any state is going to be that should actually give us more confidence than the the career and, and some appointed officials that are still at the scientific agencies. And I want to believe that in, in this big business of, of drugs and vaccines, every private sector entity also is going to protect its own interests some to not want to have a product come out. That's going to do harm. So I do want to give industry some credit, too. So cynical, optimistic. Um, and and so then what I get concerned about is that the message that we send to uh, 300 plus million people is, well, maybe you should be more worried about the vaccine because now we need to find out what they're going to say in. New York or Connecticut. I, you know, I'm from the Northeast. I'll only call out a couple of states, but, um, but that can potentially erode trust too. And then are all the governors going to get together and say, what did you find out? And then are they going to issue some kind of a national proclamation that gives us a stamp of approval to the work of our regulatory body, the FDA? I don't know. But at a time when we're also trying to come towards some kind of a coordinated federal response today and in January. I'm not quite sure that contributes to it. And then I, the upholder of state and local public health, would hope that given that, say, ASPO, for example, the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials has called out that maybe they need an additional, states need an additional $8 billion for vaccine distribution. I hope whoever does that review is doing it for free because in in the context of really tight resource allocation, perhaps those monies could go into further bolstering for for the long run, state public health, state consumer protection, and other agencies that need to partner with the private sector. Uh, might not be what you wanted to hear, but it's sort of what I'm feeling today.
0: No, I mean, I go ahead. Sorry, Patty.
1: Oh, I'm just going to be saying, to be clear, I share concerns about states' expertise. And I think the goal really should be enabling FDA to make appropriate public health-based decisions about any COVID-19 vaccine candidate and helping the states, helping finance the state's distribution efforts. And I don't know what value duplicative state review serves. I also, I, I also am worried it sends this message of distrust without adding any value. Um, and, you know, I, and, I, and I think that's, that's very troubling.
0: So the Biden-Harris administration has really, you know, they're making COVID-19 a huge priority, um, even before stepping into office, really thinking about how do we work with, how do you reunite, unite the country? How do we really address issues of structural racism? And all of that can come into play as we think about the regulatory, the equity, the logistical, issues around distributing a vaccine. So what would the both of you, what would the two of you like to see come out of the Biden-Harris administration around the vaccine distribution?
2: First, ongoing, clear, consistent communication around planning, even if it is reinforcing a lot of the messaging that we've been hearing from CDC and others over the past several months, doesn't have to be new as long as it's upheld. And, And so restoration of our federal governmental public health and science agency, early on and putting them back in a visible leadership role is really key. Leadership to collaborate with state and local government. The other thing that resonates with me, um, because when I say I'm the Associate Dean for Health Equity, which means I care about everybody, is that the messaging, even in this year, when if we can't finally address racial equity, I don't know when we will, that the messaging has to be that this is really, their intention is really to serve the the entire country. And if I just go back to the National Academy framework, we addressed that using the Social Vulnerability Index that took into account not just race and ethnicity, but lots of social factors, education, etc. And And there are examples of how that's used in rural areas, in areas that aren't even that racially and ethnically diverse because there are so many other social factors that impact people. So the ongoing, ongoing reminder that there are people in every every part of this country that need that support and that the needs across states are important and that the Native American populations ought not be forgotten is really key. And then the last thing that I would say is uh, maybe we have borders, maybe there are no borders in this world. We're part of a global community. So for them to also step out early on to restore our global collaboration will enhance our standing as we try to improve equity here, but will enhance our Contribution to equity across the globe.
0: Patty, any any last thoughts? I mean,
1: I, I agree with all of that. And I hope that the uh, Biden-Harris administration, as Dr. Mullen said, restores, uh, restores the place of, of experts in the federal government with respect to public health and science. And, you know, including taking the advice of, uh, you know, experts like the National Academies Committee that Dr. Mullen served on to address these, um, you know, incredibly important questions about equitable allocation. And I guess throw as much money as possible at the problems, you know, especially the, you know, engineering problems with respect to how to distribute the vaccine, like just yeah. Yeah. throw money at it. Like.
0: <laughs> Thank you both so much for spending time with us, for sharing your knowledge and your guidance. This is a critically important issue for us to be able to overcome this COVID-19 pandemic. So again, thank you. Thank you to my guests and thank you all for listening as well today. Um, for the next few weeks, we will be broadcasting at noon Eastern time every Tuesday and Thursday. And you can go to at PH Law Watch or search hashtag COVID Law Briefing. The show notes and access to the COVID legal assessment are at www www.publichealthlawwatch.org. And the shows are archived every week by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twihl.com. The COVID Law Briefings are produced by Faith Callick, Summer Brown, and Liz Voiles. We'll see you next time. Stay safe, wear a mask. Thank you.